Sim Swapping, Zero Days, The Pain of Death, and LastPass. Again, all that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. With me, as always, is Paul Duckman. Paul, how do you do? Very well, Doug. You put some high drama sound into that intro, I'm pleased to see. Well, how do you say ping of death without ping of death? You can't just say, oh, ping of death. You gotta punch it a little bit. I suppose so. It's different in writing. What have you got? Bold and italics. I just went with normal text. But I did use capital letters, which helps. Yeah, I think I would bold and italicize the word death, so the ping of death. And use multiple colors. I'll do that next time, Doug. <laughs> Break out the old blink tag in HTML and let it blink a little bit. Doug, oh, yeah, I thought times. for a moment I was worried you were going to use the word <laughs> marquee. <laughs> we love old stuff here, and uh, that dovetails nicely with our This Week in Tech History segment. I'm excited about this one because uh, I hadn't heard about it, but uh, stumbled across it. This week, December 4th, 2001, the goner worm ransacked the internet at a pace second only to that of the love bug virus. Goner spread via Microsoft Outlook and promised unsuspecting victims a fun screensaver when executed. Goner, I think it got that name because there was a pop-up at the end, wasn't there, that mentioned the Pentagon, but it was meant to be a pun. It was Pentagon. That was certainly the worm that reminded people that, in fact, Windows screensavers are just executable programs. So if you were looking out specially for .exe files, well, they could be wrapped up in .scr screensaver files as well. So if you were only relying on file names, you could easily be tricked. And many people were, sadly. All right, so we'll go from the old school to the new school. We're talking about LastPass. There was a breach. The breach itself wasn't terrible, but that breach has now led to another breach. Or maybe this is just a continuation of the original breach. Yes, LastPass has written about it, essentially as a follow-up to the previous breach, which I think was August 2022, wasn't it? And as we said at the time, it was a very embarrassing look for LastPass. But as breaches go, it was probably worse for their PR, marketing, and I guess for their intellectual property departments, because it seems the main thing the crooks made away with was source code from their development system. And LastPass was quick to reassure people that, firstly, their investigations suggested that whilst they were in there, the crooks weren't able to make any unauthorized changes that might later percolate into the real code. Secondly, that access to the development system doesn't give you access to the production system where the actual code is built. And thirdly, they were able to say it seemed that no encrypted password vaults were stolen. So the cloud storage of your encrypted passwords was not accessed. And even if it had been accessed, then only you would know the password because the decryption, as you called the heavy lifting when we spoke about it on the podcast, is actually done in memory on your devices. LastPass never sees your password. Oh, and then fourthly, they said, as far as we can tell, as a result of that breach, some of the stuff that was in the development environment has now given either the same or possibly a completely different load of crooks who bought the stolen data off the previous lot, who knows, that did allow them to get into some cloud service where some as yet apparently unknown set of customer data was stolen. 
but I don't think they quite know yet because it can take a while to work out what actually did get accessed after a breach happened. So I think it is fair to say this is sort of the B-side of the original breach. All right. We suggest that if you're a LastPass customer to keep an eye on the company's security incident report. We will keep an eye on this story as it still may be developing. And if you, like Paul and I, fight cybercrime for a living, there is an excellent, uh, some lessons to be learned from the Uber breach. So that's a podcast episode, a mini-sode with Chester Wisniewski that Paul has embedded in the bottom of the LastPass article. So lots to learn on that front. As you say, that's a great listen because it's, uh, I believe, what is known in America as actionable advice or news you can use. (laughs) Wonderful. Speaking of news you can't really use, uh, Apple is uh, generally tight-lipped about its security updates, and uh, there was a security update. Oh, Doug, that's one of your finest. I like that segue. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, this surprised me. I thought, well, I'll grab the update because it sounds serious, and I gave myself the reason that let me do it for naked security readers. Because if I do it and there are no side effects, then I can at least say to other people, look, I just blindly did it and no harm came to me. So maybe you can do it as well. I just suddenly noticed that there was an iOS 16.1.2 update available. Although I had had no security advisory email from Apple. No email. That's weird. So I went to the HT201222 portal page that Apple has for its security bulletins. And there it was, iOS 16.1.2. And what does it say, Doug? Details will follow soon. And did they follow soon? Well, that was more than a week ago, and they're not there yet. So are we talking soon, meaning hours, days, weeks, or months? At the moment, it's looking like weeks. And as always with Apple, there's no indication of anything to do with any other operating systems. Have they been forgotten? Do they not need the update? Do they also need the update, but it's just not ready yet? Have they been dropped out of support? But it did seem, as I said in the headline, even more tight-lipped than usual for Apple, and not necessarily the most helpful thing in the world. Okay, very good. So still some questions, which leads us to our next story. A very interesting question. Sometimes when you sign up for a service and it enforces two-factor authentication, it says, do you want to get notified via text message, or do you want to use an authentication app? And this story is a cautionary tale to not use your phone, use your use an authentication app, even if it's a little bit more cumbersome. This was a very interesting story. It is, Doug. If you've ever lost a mobile phone or locked yourself out of your SIM card by putting in the PIN incorrectly too many times, you'll know that you can go into the mobile phone shop, and usually they'll ask for ID or something, and you say, hey, I need a new SIM card. And they'll generate one for you. When you put it into your phone, bingo, it's got your old number on it. So what that means is that if a crook can go through the same exercise that you would to convince the mobile phone company that they have giant air quotes included here, lost or broken their SIM card, i.e. your SIM card, and they can get that card either handed to or sent to or given to them somehow, then when they plug it into their phone, they start getting your SMS two-factor authentication codes, and your phone stops working. That's the bad news. The good news in this article is this was a case of a chap who got busted for it. He's been sent to prison in the US for 18 months. So he, with a bunch of accomplices, or in the words of the Department of Justice, the scheme participants, (laughs) 
They made off with one particular victim's cryptocurrency, apparently to the tune of $20 million, if you don't mind. So he agreed to plead guilty, take a prison sentence, and immediately forfeit. The amount was $983,010.72 US cents. Just forfeit that right away. So presumably had that lying around and apparently also has some kind of legal obligation to refund over $20 million. Good luck with that, everyone. Good luck. So other scheme participants might have uh, be causing some issues there. Yes, I don't know what happens if they refuse to cooperate as well. Like if they just hang him out to dry, what happens? But we've got some tips and some advice on how to beef up security in more ways than just the two FAUs in the article. So go and read that, and every little bit helps. Okay. Uh, speaking of little bits, this was fa- another fascinating story, how the lowly ping can be used to trigger remote code execution. I think you've bettered yourself, Doug. <laughs> I'm on a roll today. <laughs> From Apple to the yeah. ping of death. <laughs> yes, this was an intriguing bug. I don't think it will really cause many people much harm. And it is patched, so fixing it is easy. But there's a great write-up in the FreeBSD Security Advisory, and it makes for an entertaining and, if I say so myself, a very informative tale for the current generation of programmers who may have relied on third-party libraries will just do it for me, dealing with low-level network packets. I never have to think about it. There's some great lessons to be learned here. The ping utility, which is the one network tool that pretty much everybody knows about, It gets its name from sonar. You go, bing! And then the echo comes back from the server at the other end. And this is a feature that's built into the internet protocol, IP, using a thing called ICMP, Internet Control Message Protocol. It's a special low-level protocol, much lower than UDP or TCP that people are probably used to, that's pretty much designed for exactly this kind of thing. Are you actually even alive at the other end before I go worrying about why your web server isn't working? There's a special kind of packet you can send out called ICMP Echo. So you send this tiny little packet with a short message in it. The message can be anything you like, and it simply sends that very same message back to you. It's just a basic way of saying if that message doesn't come back, either the network or the entire server is down rather than that there's some software problem on the computer. By analogy with Sonar, the program that sends out these Echo requests is called... I'm going to do the sound effect, Doug. <laughs> and the idea is you go ping space, say minus C3, that means check three times, space nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You could do that right now, and you should get three replies one second apart from the WordPress servers that host our site. And it's saying the site's alive. It's not telling you that the web server's up, it's not telling you that WordPress is up, it's not telling you that naked security is actually available to read but at least it confirms that you can see the server and the server can reach you. And who would have thought that that lowly little ping reply could trip up the FreeBSD ping program in such a way that a rogue server could send back a booby-trapped, yes, I am alive message that could, in theory, in theory only, I don't think anyone's done this in practice, trigger remote code execution on your computer. Yeah, that's amazing. That's the amazing part. Even if it's a proof of concept, it's such a small little thing. The ping program itself gets the whole IP packet back, 
and it's supposed to divide it into two parts. Normally, the kernel would handle this for you, just see the data part. But when you're dealing with what are called raw sockets, what you get back is the internet protocol header, which just says, hey, these bytes came from such and such a server. And then you get a thing called the ICMP echo reply, which is the second half of the packet you get back. Now, these packets, they're typically just 100 bytes or so. And the first, if it's IPv4, the first 20 bytes are the IP header. And the remainder, whatever it is, is the echo reply with a few bytes to say this is an echo reply and then the original message that went out coming back. And so the obvious thing to do, Doug, when you get it, is you split it into the IP header, which is 20 bytes long, and the rest. Guess where the problem lies? Do tell. The problem is that IP headers are almost always 20 bytes long. And in fact, I don't think I've ever seen one that wasn't. And you can tell they're 20 bytes long because the first byte will be hexadecimal 45. The 4 means IPv4, and the 5, oh, we'll use that to say how long the header is. You take that number, 5, and you multiply it by 4, i.e. 32-bit values, and you get 20 bytes. And that is the size of probably six sigmas worth of IP headers that you will ever see in the whole world, Doug. But <laughs> they can go up to 60 bytes. So if you put 4f instead of 4.5, that says there are f, or 15 in decimal, times 4 equals 60 bytes in the header. And the FreeBSD code simply took that header and copied it into a buffer on the stack that was 20 bytes in size. A simple old school stack buffer overflow. So it's a case of a venerable network troubleshooting tool with a venerable type of bug in it. Well, not anymore. So when you are programming and you have to deal with low-level stuff that nobody's really thought about for ages, don't just go with the received wisdom that says, oh, you'll never, it'll always be 20 bytes. You'll never see anything bigger. Because one day you might. And when that day comes, it might be there deliberately because a crook made it so on purpose. So the devil, as always, is in the programming details, Doug. Okay, very interesting. Great story. Uh, and we'll, we will stick on the subject of code with this final story about Chrome, another zero day, which brings the 2022 total to nine times. Number nine, number nine, number nine, <laughs> number nine, Douglas. Was this Yoko uh, Ono? I, that's Revolution 9 off the Beatles' White Album. So she can be heard riffing away in, in that song, that soundscape, I believe they call mm -hmm. it. But apparently the bit at the beginning where there's somebody saying number nine, number nine, over and over again, it was in fact a test tape they found lying around ah, in the studio cool. Yeah, cool. from an, an EMI engineer saying something like, this is EMI test tape number nine. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, some, I don't even think anyone knows whose voice it was. That has nothing to do with Chrome, Doug, but given that somebody commented on Facebook the other day that that Paul guy is starting to look like a beetle, <laughs> which I found slightly um, odd. Yeah, how are you supposed to and, take that? you know, I figured I could down out on number nine. It is that the ninth zero day of the year so far, it seems, Doug. And it's a one bug fix. The bug is identified as CVE-2022-4282. And because Microsoft Edge uses the Chromium open source core, it too was vulnerable. 
and a couple of days later, Microsoft followed up with an update for Edge. So this is both a Chrome and an Edge issue. So although those browsers should update themselves, I recommend going to check anyway. We show you how to do that in the article, just in case. So I won't read out the version numbers here because they're different for Mac at Linux and Windows on Chrome, and they're different again for Edge. Like Apple, Google's being a bit tight-lipped about this one. It was found by one of their threat hunting team, I do believe. So I imagine they found it while investigating an incident that happened in the wild. And therefore, they probably want to keep it under their hat, even though Google usually has a lot to say about openness when it comes to bug fixing. You can see why in a case like this, you might want a little bit of time to dig a little bit deeper before you tell everybody exactly how it works. Excellent. And we do have a reader question that uh, it's probably a question a lot of people are thinking. Cassandra asks, are the bug finders just getting lucky at finding bugs or have struck a seam, quote unquote, full of bugs? Or is Chromium issuing new code that is more buggy than normal? Or is something else going on? Yes, that's a great question, actually. And I'm afraid that I could only answer it in a slightly facetious sort of way, Doug, because she'd given choice as A, B and C. And I said, well, maybe it's D, all of the above. We do know that when a bug of one particular sort shows up in code, then it's reasonable to assume that the same programmer may have made similar bugs elsewhere in the software. Or other programmers at the same company may have been using what was considered, if you like, received wisdom or standard practice at the time and may have followed suit. And a great example is if you look back to Log4j, there was a fix to patch the problem. And then when they went looking, oh, actually, there are other places where similar mistakes have been made. So there was a fix for the fix. And then there was a fix for the fix for the fix, if I remember. There is, of course, also the issue that when you add new code, you may get bugs that are unique to that new code and come about because of adding features. And that's why many browsers, Chrome included, have a, if you like, a slightly older version you can stick with. And the idea is that those older releases they have none of the new features, but all of the relevant security fixes. So if you want to be conservative about new features, you can be. But we certainly know that sometimes when you shovel new features into a product, new bugs come with the new features. And you can tell that, for example, when there's an update, for, say, for your iPhone, and you get updates, say, for iOS 15 and iOS 16. And then when you look at the bug lists, there are a few bugs that only apply to iOS 16 and you think, hello, <laughs> those must be bugs in the code that wasn't there before. So yes, that's a possibility. And I think the other things that are going on can be considered good. The first is that I think that particularly for things like browsers, the browser makers are getting much better at pushing out full rebuilds really, really quickly. Hmm, interesting. And I think the other thing that's changed is that in the past, you could argue that for many vendors, it was quite difficult to get people to apply patches at all, even when they came out only on a monthly schedule, even if they had multiple zero-day fixes in them. So I think maybe it also is a response to the fact that more and more of us are more and more likely not just to accept, but actually to expect automatic updating that is really prompt. So I think you can read some good stuff into this. The fact not only that Google can push out a single zero-day fix almost instantaneously, and people are willing to accept that and even to demand it. So I like to see that 
issue of, wow, nine zero days in the year fixed individually. I like to think that more as glass half fill and filling up than glass half empty and draining through a small hole in the bottom. <laughs> that is my opinion. All right. Very good. Thank you for the question, Cassandra. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.